0: friday june the 25th and you're watching Goodfellows, a hoover institution broadcast examining social economic political and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic i'm bill whalen i'm a jenny hobbs carpenter fellow in journalism here at the hoover institution I'll be your moderator today. And before we get on with the show, first, I'd like to uh, say a couple words to those of you who are kind enough to write into us. We haven't done good fellows in about a month. I think actually today is one month to the day since we did our last show with Glenn Lowry. And uh, a lot of you were concerned that we had gone dark. Uh, we just took a little time off, let these uh, three very talented fellows of ours catch their breath and get on with their lives. And we're back here right now. But we do appreciate when you write in and ask how we're doing. You do a show like this, and you always kind of wonder, is it making any impact out there are people watching or not? And you're... Letters are confirmation, and you say very nice things, your letters about how much you enjoy the show, how thoughtful it is, how smart it is, how provocative, and it means a lot to us. So on behalf of Neil and HR and John, thanks for writing, and we're back. Now, having said that, we'll probably be dialed down a bit for the summer. We'll probably do one show in July and one show in August. So fear not, we're going away. We're just slowing down a little bit for the summertime. So with that, let's get on with the show, and I'd like to introduce the three Hoover Institution Senior Fellows, who we jokingly refer to as our good fellows. That would include John Cochran, Johnson economist, and he is the Rosemary and Jack Anderson senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Hello, John. Hi. Good to see you. Our second good fellow joining us from Island Time, which explains that shirt he is wearing is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. General McMaster is, of course, a former presidential national security advisor, and he is the Fawada Michelle Ajami senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Hello, H.R. Aloha.
1: Hey, aloha. Good to see you guys.
0: And our third good fellow, who's also on a, a different uh, time zone than us, decidedly not Hawaii, he can perhaps explain where he is and what he's up to, Neil Ferguson. Neil's, of course, a renowned historian and author, and he is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior
2: Fellow. Hello, Neil. Well, it's great to be back. Uh, I'm actually uh, using my old-fashioned uh, British teapot because I'm in in—I'm in the United Kingdom. In fact, I'm in South Wales. And its uh, it's a delight to be back, and yes, I appreciate those who inquired after our our health and well being you can't get rid of us that easily.
0: So the show is a testament to technology, three fellows in three very different time zones. Uh, As for the topic today, we thought since we hadn't been together for a month, we would do a BYO show, bring your own topic. And then Professor Ferguson introduced his topic and we realized that his topic was really a show in itself. And what Neil was talking about was the parallels between the America of today and the world of today versus that of the 1970s. Professor Cochran then chimed in and called it That 70s Show, and that's what we're doing today, That 70s Show, which started, by the way, another chain of emails among the fellows. and that is what the fellows would look like in the 1970s. So, folks, if you're watching, sit down and brace yourself. You're now going to see what John Cochran looked like in the 1970s on the mean streets of Chicago. Whoops. Actually, that is me. That is me. And I think I'm in about sixth grade in the early 1970s. And um, I love Love that that tie. It's it's a Brewster tie. Isn't that great? Okay. This is Neil Ferguson. Uh, Feel free to name what British rocker he looks like. I don't want (laughs) to give you the choice and insult, Neil. But, Neil, you're kind of going for the whole soulful thing there, aren't you?
2: This was just Uh, (laughs) pre-punk. And and that's the nearly punk and shortly after that all my hair was cut off and replaced by a hideous rather spiky affair but yeah uh, uh, the 70s for me were all about escape from from concept rock and 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 uh, the arrival of of punk rock and i think that that photograph captures me with my first electric guitar which cost 15 quid second hand in a very very seedy part of glasgow
0: well done all right uh, and now here's john cochran john i hate this photo because look at all that hair and i hate you because you still have all that hair those of us who are struggling with way too much forehead we don't like this but uh i like that shirt i really like the necklace by the way john that interesting interesting uh, choice in uh, in chains that you have going there that was the 70s heights of fashion <laughs> <laughs> and then finally you have to picture this without hair that is none other than future lieutenant general hr mcmaster at hr is that at valley forge
1: no, that's actually that's actually West Point, so that that West would be Point, that's actually 80s. It's a little bit oh. 80s there. So, you know, um, yeah, I made the unfortunate uh, choice to part my hair in the middle back then. <laughs>
0: Uh, If you've ever seen Boogie Nights, you know, that was a popular hair move. Mine was parted, I think, in about ninth or 10th grade as well. So, gentlemen, thank you for sharing a little bit of the past. Uh, Neil, why don't you start the show by explaining um, the parallels, what you see between the 70s and now, and then, John, maybe you can chip in and talk about the economic parallels HR could do with foreign policy. But, Neil, give us the big picture um, thought here. Well,
2: of course, part of the interest in comparing decades is the contrast as as much as the similarities. And I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea here. I think there are profound differences between our time and the 1970s. On the other hand, I thought it would be worth thinking a little bit about what we can learn from looking uh, back at that time for a few reasons. Uh, one is, I guess, just politics. Uh, I mean, in the end, uh, though we're told that uh, Joe Biden's a transformative president, the nightmare scenario uh, for him is turning out to be Jimmy Carter uh, rather than Lyndon Johnson, much less Franklin Roosevelt. So I started wondering if if the 1970s could happen politically. Socially and, and, and culturally, there's something to be said for this analogy. One of the stories that I think is going to become progressively more and more important, I think I mentioned this in some earlier shows before it started to be a talking point uh, for the administration, is crime. And uh, obviously one of the things we remember about the 1970s is that urban America seemed to become steadily crazier in the course of that uh, decade. And if you, uh, if you look around the crime data from last year and this year, do suggest that something is going pretty badly wrong in a significant number of, of US cities. So I, I started asking myself if we might find ourselves back in that kind of messy time of uh, of escalating urban violence. And then when you turn to, to, to the foreign policy issues that that we confront, the thing that's uppermost in my mind is that it's exactly 50 years ago that Henry Kissinger flew secretly uh, to Beijing and and began the process of establishing some diplomatic channel uh, of communication between the Washington uh, and the Chinese Communist Party in in power, then, of course, under Mao Zedong. And that was a truly pivotal moment in world history. Uh, 50 years on, the relationship has evolved in any number of ways, but it's become the most important relationship in the world. It's probably the foreign policy relationship we've talked about the most on on Goodfellas since we we started uh, the show last year. Iran is uh, in the news, uh, a new a president's just been elected, it seems he's even more of a hardliner than uh, than uh, the last uh, two presidents and is tipped to become the next supreme leader. Uh, if uh, Khamenei, uh, Grand Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, shuffles off this mortal coil, uh, and of course, uh, Iran was the issue, perhaps more than any other, that uh, that that helped sink uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, presidency, along, of course, with Afghanistan. And uh, I think it was actually a mention of Afghanistan by HR in an email thread that started me thinking mm-hmm. about the nineteen seventies and and that sense that we. We're coming in some measure uh, full circle. Uh, the issues of our time seem strangely familiar. They seem a lot like the issues of the 1970s, even if they've morphed in, in all kinds of, of strange ways. I'll, I'll resist the temptation to reflect on the popular culture of the time. I think the, the evidence, the photographic evidence that you've just presented, Bill, uh, decisively confirms that it was a different time culturally, or at least sartorially. It was HR, why don't you
0: pick up on the foreign policy thread here. Um, Question, would Afghanistan equal South Vietnam? Question, do you see a situation like Iran popping up where Iran popped up on Carter's radar screen and would Biden face a similar crisis? Do
1: you see 70s and 2020s parallels? Well, you know, I think at a high level of generality, just maybe our lack of confidence right Our lack of confidence in our ability to implement an effective and reasoned foreign policy and national security strategy i think that's a that's a valid analogy if you think of the 70s as really beginning with the withdrawal from vietnam the you know the the, the humiliation of the the loss of of saigon the humanitarian cat- catastrophe that that's that followed for so many vietnamese and then had to flee the the brutality of the vietnamese communist government as it took over of Vietnam that shook our confidence, right? And of course, we had the social divisions and so forth, all sorts of domestic dynamics that Neil mentioned. Uh, but but you bookend that at the end of the of the end of that decade uh, with the hostage crisis uh, in in Iran, uh, a, a source of tremendous humiliation for the Carter administration. Right. Uh, and and yeah, it was a period of stagflation. We had you know, the oil embargo. there was a, a, a sense in that decade, I think that, you know that, that America really had a hard time advancing and protecting its interests abroad, and and there was a period of, of introspection associated with all these disappointments and a belief that we should maybe just disengage uh, from the world uh, in in the 1970s. And so I, I think that you know I think that, that that's valid today, uh, but I, I think also that there are key elements of 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 of, of change or, or discontinuity. I think there is a beginning now. In, you know, in, uh, in this decade to recognize that we must compete much more effectively with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and I think that we've learned, I hope we have anyway, that we have to remain engaged to, to prevent uh, problems from, uh, fr- from growing to the extent that they become a severe threat to us once they reach our shores. And I think that's the, that's the lesson of COVID-19. But, but okay. what, when I look back into the, you know, to the 70s in Afghanistan, of course, that was that was in the middle of, of what had begun what had already begun in Afghanistan with the Sour Revolution, uh, a period of, of just continuous conflict in that country, that you know that that ravaged the country across multiple decades. Right, we had of course the, the Soviet invasion and then our support for you know, for Mujahideen militias uh, who who were fighting against the Soviet occupation, uh, but then of course when that when, when, the, when the Soviets withdrew. Uh, when, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we also disengaged uh, from from South Asia, uh, and when that happened, there was a massive civil war in Afghanistan between 1992 and 1996. A, a civil war that ended with the Taliban in power, and right. that's when hell really began for for Afghans between '96 and 2001. Of course, we know that the end of that story is that the Taliban gave safe haven to support based Al Qaeda, who committed. Uh, the, the most massive terrorist attack in history against us, a mass murder attack on September 11, 2001, and that's what brought us into Afghanistan. Now I think you know, we're, we're facing this disengagement from the country, um, a self-inflicted, a self-defeat, and and I think there's a theory out there these days. You know, I, I don't know what you guys think about this, but but you know it doesn't matter if you lose a war. You know, it's, everything's going to be fine once we disengage, and and uh, and and I think there are profound consequences that we're already seeing. Uh, now, even now, as, as Ashraf Ghani is visiting Washington, and I'm sure being he's, lectured, he's being lectured to that he needs to do more for peace. <laughs> and, and, and we don't even talk about the Taliban. So I, I think it was a great idea, Neil, to think about the 70s. And uh, I'll stop there because I could go on about it. But I, I think there are elements of continuity Uh, but there there are also significant differences as well.
3: Let me, um, I want a phrasing comment and then I want to ask HR some more questions about Afghanistan. Uh, My phrasing comment is, as I remember from about the time of that unfortunate haircut, uh, when, when economics professors were going on and on about the Great Depression. And I remember thinking, oh, God, yeah, I know the Pete Seeger songs, the Dorothy Alanga photos, great thing. But, you know, why do I care about the Great Depression? But, of course, that was um, exactly the same remove of time from then as the 1970s are from now. And most people are younger than us. Most people don't remember the 1970s. Most economists who I talk to Uh, We're not born uh, in the 1970s, so you know inflation and 70s and malaise and all this is as ancient history to them, as the Great Depression is to our lives and that's why we need historians go Neil uh, to remind us. (laughs) Uh, lessons are part of our human culture, even if we weren't born then. So now I want, let's, I want the question on my mind for, for uh, HR really, and, and of course Neil as well. There's an obvious Vietnam analogy. Uh, we look destined to helicopters uh, taking off the roof again as uh, the Taliban take over and, and in misery, do horrible damage to this country. I'm, I, I know um, there's so many personal tragedies, Americans and our friends there, Uh, I'm particularly saddened by the people who have helped us and the translators who we won't let into this country. Um, But it's not Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam, we we chose to lose a war because in the background, there was China and Russia. There was, uh, we did not want to prosecute the war. I think if we chose to win this war against the Taliban, we could do it as swiftly as we did the first time around. We're choosing not to do it. Uh, we are not fighting a, a, a you know, a North Vietnam backed by a China and a Russia. We are fighting a terrorist kleptocracy drug uh, organization, basically, um, that could easily, that, you know, that that's, on a military basis, not much. And we're letting them take over the country and turn it into a terrorist haven. But that's a quite different geopolitical thing than losing uh, the war in Vietnam. But I think it raises the question, which we have never said, the other difference in, um, in Afghanistan is it was, this is not our failure to win a war, this is our failure to win a peace. And that strikes me as the hard nut uh, for America. We have this fantastic military. You guys went in and wiped out Iraq in a matter of, you know, weeks. Uh, just amazing. You, you personally were there. Same in Afghanistan. When we want to win a war, God, you know, God bless our armed forces, how good they are at it. But we can't. Then what happens? Uh, and that has been disaster after disaster. Afghanistan now counts as a disaster. Uh, we were not able to win a peace. I- Iraq is not doing so great. Uh, Libya and Syria are not doing so great. Um, so uh, we're not willing to do, you know, what there's historical precedents. You, you run it as a military operation for a generation and slowly try to wing there. I, I wanna get from your sense, this seems to me like the open question. How does America, if we're going to use our military power for things like this, what are we going to do? Our one option is we just say, well, when necessary, we go in, burn the place down, walk out, and let it be a disaster for a generation. And, and this, this make, uh, I'm coming to a question, but I think this is a really important issue. Suppose Iran does something unconscionable, uh, flattens Tel Aviv. Uh, you know, that, that's a place where the US military could be called upon once again to do what it did in Iraq. And I think a conventional military invasion of, say, Iran, a horrible thing. Nonetheless, you guys could pull it off. Uh, But then what? If we don't have the answer to the then what, uh, then the whole thing falls apart. Um, And and I think that's the gaping hole in today's question uh, of such affairs. So... Somewhere in there, there's
1: a question. I, I think, start, I think there's a do? parallel. I think there's a parallel to the '70s here in connection with how and why Vietnam became an American war in the first place. And that parallel is we we tend not to think about what happens next when, when we make decisions at, at the national level involving life and death, involving war and peace. And and in the run up to the Vietnam War, I wrote a book about this. In, in 1965, the National Security Vic McGeorge Buddy said, "Hey." It's 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 an advantage not to have an objective in this war because that way if we don't quite meet that objective we say oh that was never our objective anyway. Okay, but if we'll I so in 75
3: we we were trying to support the south vietnamese regime so in a sense it was a not able to win the peace we were unable well, to the, get a I stable mean, functional exactly. country there the, so we didn't have to fight the north vietnamese oh, by
2: that time we'd given up supporting the south vietnamese uh, which was why yeah. they lost okay so
3: 1960 I mean, or whatever but there I'm was in, a failure in, to win a peace in the, there in the period the
1: in the period during which america i mean the vietnam became an american war you know from 64 into, into the summer of 65 decisions were made without a strategy for the war essentially it was just do a bunch of stuff right get you know do uh, conduct a, a series of covert raids under op plan 34a it was called in early 1964 you know get the first bombing runs off on, uh, after, uh, under ro- rolling thunder deploy the first marine and army units there for quote offensive killing operations but what didn't happen is there wasn't the development of policy and strategy that aimed to achieve a sustainable political outcome and to do so under a strategy that would be acceptable in terms of cost and risk to the american people and so this is our tendency to take a short-term approach to long-term problems and to consider only the next step up the ladder forgetting that nothing is more interactive than war and once you once you enter into a conflict, your enemy has a say in the future course of events, right? So, so uh, there are also oftentimes implicit and fundamentally flawed assumptions that underpin war planning efforts. And I say I would say that both those conditions—short-term approach to a long-term problem—and a misframing of the nature of the war and what we're trying to achieve—applied to both Afghanistan and Iraq. And you know, we often debate. Okay, you know. What did we should we have you know, should we have invaded Iraq for example I think it was clear we had to invade Afghanistan after 9-11. but I think what we need to debate is hey who the hell thought it would be easy and why did they think it would be easy and the reason is they considered war these wars uh, in a way that they cut against the very nature of war war is political therefore and this is what you're alluding to John hey if you don't have a plan. To get to a sustainable political outcome, that's not an effective plan. You can unseat the Taliban, but you have to get to that sustainable political outcome. In many ways, the strategy we employed and the multiple strategies over time, which continuously shifted, were focused too myopically on what we wanted to achieve militarily and not enough on how to consolidate gains to get to that sustainable outcome. But I'll, I'll say one just one more thing, and I'd like to hear what Neil thinks about this. But I think the Afghan war is fundamentally misunderstood by Americans. And, and I, would, I would say that by 2019, it was clear we, we'd won, right? We'd won, we had 8,500 troops there. Our troops were not engaged in direct combat. We were supporting Afghan forces who were taking high casualties, but at now at a sustainable level because we were actively going after the Taliban. Hey, Afghanistan wasn't Denmark. There was a lot of violence there. But Afghanistan doesn't need to be Denmark. And what we did is we convinced ourselves that because Afghanistan is not Denmark yet, and because we have this whole large number of troops, 8,500 troops, I mean, hey, if we were Ecuador, that would be a big number maybe, but we're not Ecuador. 8,500 troops sustained there at a cost of about $20 billion a year. That is sustainable. There were more European troops there than there were American troops. There was tremendous cost sharing and burden sharing. And so what we what we don't do is invest in the long term. What I think there was an insurance policy to prevent the return of the Taliban, which is happening, by the way. The Taliban are now in control of about 60 districts. They're taking control of these districts faster than they can set up administration for them. They didn't anticipate this, this collapse going this, this quickly. Uh, and you're seeing the brutality return as, as people are displaced, right? People are fleeing the, the, the Taliban in these areas. So what, what we what, what's so sad about it What's devastating to me uh, in, in terms of just being so damn disappointing is, is that we actually, we, we actually empowered the Taliban as we were leaving, you know, with, with a, a weak agreement, not only a weak agreement, but an w- agreement that contained all sorts of sc- concessions. We didn't demand a ceasefire at all. Secondly, we, uh, you know, we, we, we forced the Afghan government to, to release prisoners who now reinvigorated the Taliban and went right back to the right back to, to, to the battlefield. Uh, and then the Secretary of State again, he wrote this, wrote this letter to Ashraf Ghani, hey, we need you to do more for peace. While the Taliban is, is, uh, is, 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 is blowing up girls' schools and then setting off secondary explosions after that explosion to kill more young girls, while they're, they're attacking maternity hospitals and gunning down infants and expectant mothers. You know, I mean, I, I, we have deluded ourselves on Afghanistan, and there's a reckoning coming for humanity there. And if we want to talk about the 70s, how about just like the, how about just replaying the 2010s the show and learning from a much more proximate ex- experience, which was the complete withdrawal from Iraq, after which Al Qaeda took control of territory the size of Britain, became a global threat and compelled
2: us to go back, right? I mean, that's what we're facing in Afghanistan. I think it's really important what you've just said HR, that the, the war in Afghanistan was misunderstood publicly. And I think to a large extent forgotten about. And the really striking contrast for me between this long engagement in Afghanistan and the somewhat shorter but still pretty protracted engagement in in Vietnam is that the war in Vietnam ended acrimoniously uh, with the issue as one of the main issues of the time. As I work my way through the papers for the second volume of the Kissinger biography, I'm struck again and again by how totally dominant this issue was Dominant in the news, dominant in popular culture. It was the central rallying issue for the American left in the 1970s. And every conversation ended up coming back at some point to to Vietnam. Our experience with Afghanistan, and I think also with Iraq, has been quite different. Because ultimately, the old volunteer force fought fought those wars, and the public checked out pretty quickly. As soon as the media uh, ceased to cover them intensively, and these wars have ultimately failed because of public apathy, not anti-war sentiment, but just indifference uh, to the military effort and a lack of interest in the goals that were being pursued. So in that sense, there's a really there's a really striking contrast. This
1: is what I call I'm not to keep you guys have done that a lot for me. I appreciate it. But I, I call this this phenomenon, strategic narcissism. It's our tendency to define the world only relation to us and assume that what we do is going to be decisive toward a favorable outcome. And we don't even consider the enemy who we are fighting. How many times have you seen a New York Times article or any article on the nature of the Taliban, the Taliban leadership? How many Americans know the name of Haibatullah Akhundzada? How many of them know really what the Taliban wants to achieve? What is their vision? For the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, what does that mean for all humanity? You know, and 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 uh, and, and, and 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 what does it mean uh, in, in connection with the jihadist terrorist ecosystem there? How many Americans could name the three main Taliban groups at least until Hezb-e uh, Islami Gulbuddin reconciled with the government? Who we were fighting there? Can you imagine, like in, in World War II? Hey, who are enemies again? I'm not sure. So we don't <laughs> even consider who our enemies are. You know, and and therefore. There's no discussion of what is at stake. And, 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 and I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that this, this war was not only misunderstood, but I think paradoxically, uh, it, it, was, it was the least covered war uh, in, in American history, in, in the media as well.
3: Well, well let, me, let me just sum up here, I think, there are really important points. Uh, Jane Fonda is not flying to uh, Kabul to meet with the leaders of the Taliban. Uh, That's just an enormous difference in, in public uh, perception and where that war, these wars are in, in America. You know, we're busy tearing each, each other apart about other things. Right. The other important point that I'm getting from uh, HR is that it is possible, one route out of, once you've invaded a country, what do you do next? that a small but dedicated military presence over a generation can help to build and stabilize uh, a government if done well. Uh, and, and not, uh, you know, that it's, that's a very difficult state building enterprise. I don't know if Neil has a good uh, historical analog that doesn't involve colonialism <laughs> uh, of taking over a country and forming institutions that let that thing be peaceful. But you are saying the history of Afghanistan says at least it's possible to go 20 years uh, with a small but dedicated and, and competent military presence, which partly answers my question of what is what is the feasible plan?
1: Uh, for yeah, me? so hey, I, I would just, and Neil, I want to hear what you think about this in terms of historical analogies, maybe even from, you know, from a European or or British perspective of British history as well. But the consolidation of gains to get to a sustainable outcome has never been an optional phase of war, right? We've always had to do it. We've never been able to never do it again, to use a phrase that, that the historian Conrad Crane has used in this connection. But we continue to delude ourselves uh, that, that we won't have to do it next time. Really, really, the next war will be fundamentally different from all those that have gone before. It'll be fast, cheap, efficient. It can be waged from standoff range with precision munitions. And this was the orthodoxy of the RMA that was in large measure a setup for some of the difficulties in Afghanistan because we didn't, we didn't think about what did we need to do to consolidate gains. And one of the reasons why, to go back to the 70s, we didn't plan for it is what I would call the Vietnam syndrome, right? And, and, and a hangover from the Vietnam experience that, hey, we never want to do that again. So instead, what we decided to do is take what we might call the George Costanza approach to war and just leave on a high note. We were just going to go in, unseat the government and say, hey, well, see you. But then we realized then, yeah. well, you can't do that because you have to establish a sustainable political outcome. Well, we didn't pay attention to it in Afghanistan is a- and, and 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 the militias took over you know the gov- I mean I could go on about this but so good examples yes all right korea okay hey it was pretty bad in south korea in 1953 right you had a, you had a, you had a country that was completely devastated by war i mean i think there was a tree standing in the country it had no natural resources had a corrupt government and and uh, had a hostile neighbor and we sustained forces there for a long time and it wasn't pretty in, in korea i would say until like the 80s, right? right? So the economic reforms of the 70s, the political reforms of the 80s, now look at it today. How I, about I think, uh, how, uh, smaller examples of But Panama. HR,
2: before you go on, stop right there because that is such a crucial point that you've just made. That the success of South Korea wasn't yet obvious in the 1970s. Yeah. And so you couldn't make the argument Let's make South Vietnam, South Korea, because at that point it was an unpersuasive argument. Guess when the TV series MASH started to air? 1972. And most of us thought about the Korean War in the terms of that TV series, unless we had a direct family connection to the war. And the the way that the Korean War is presented in MASH is as the Vietnam War in which cynical soldiers uh, discuss ways in which they can avoid continuation in the war. That's what Corporal Klinger is all about. So to me, the problem was that when the arguments were being made, and this is still the case, but I think it was really important then for continuing to to sustain South Vietnam, the, the, the great example of South Korea wasn't a great example yet. But actually, South Korea is the best example in answer to John's question, Uh, and it's been such a success from an economic as well as a political point of view that it's now a shining example of of a highly effective Asian democracy. By the way, over the last four or five weeks when I've been talking about doom, I'm constantly asked which countries got COVID right. Taiwan is one and South Korea is another. Uh, So it's a success even in terms of of public health. So, yeah, the problem for me is that back in the 70s, there wasn't really a compelling argument. People stopped believing that there was a viable South Vietnam that that would be worth preserving. Uh, And the cost ultimately was borne by the people of South Vietnam because the cost of defeat was extremely high for the people of South Vietnam. But now come to Afghanistan, the argument that, seems to me will be right is that letting the Taliban come back to power will end up costing us very dearly. It's amazing that we're coming up to the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and there hasn't been another 9-11. But does that mean there won't be another 9-11? No. Ultimately, if we simply walk away from this, we are going to allow the original planning headquarters of jihad to, to reform itself. So the actual arguments for trying to make a go of Vietnam, of, of, of Afghanistan, are even more compelling, actually, than the arguments for trying to sustain South Vietnam were. South Vietnam didn't pose a direct Vietnam didn't pose a direct threat to Americans, in the way that ultimately Afghanistan could again.
3: Let me also uh, so there's a your example I think illustrates what I think is the important principle here. Um, I think there was some over enthusiasm in the Iraq war of we'll go in, we'll wipe them out in a month, we'll hold elections, uh, they'll have a democracy and the stable democracy and all the wonders of America and then we leave, uh, you know, and we'll be out of here in two months. Uh, And the optimism was not so much on the war end, but on the peace end. Uh, And what I think we forget is that our uh, society lives on a deep set of institutions. Uh, The rule of law, property rights, functioning courts, all that sort of stuff. And what you're describing in Korea, uh, I think, is the allowing the time and the gentle pressure to build up the institutions of a civil society that allow a society to run. And that, I think, was the fundamental mistake in Iraq. Uh, This is more a question because I'm not an expert on it. But to recognize that this was a country whose institutions had been completely destroyed, if they had them in the first place. You know, why did Germany, Germany and Japan are the great examples? We invade it, uh, and then ten years later, they're functioning countries again. Well, they had people, institutions, uh, civil society. They had a lot that was still there that needs to be built before you can leave, and perhaps that's the process that happened in South Korea, uh, and was perhaps slowly beginning to happen in Afghanistan, but it's gonna take a generation to build that. You don't just go in, have elections and leave. And I think a lot of our country has forgotten that that's the bedrock of our own country. We don't just live on, we vote in a new king, 51%, he issues edicts or she issues edicts. We live on a a tradition that starts with the Magna Carta of a, a deep set of institutions of civil society, and that needs to be built.
0: Right, let's, uh, let's talk about the king for a second. Uh, John, thank you, this is a nice segue here. Uh, there's an anniversary coming up, July the 15th to be exact. And that is the date in 1979 that Jimmy Carter gave the famous Malay speech. Uh, he never actually used the word Malays. A little background on this, Carter had spent the previous 10 days at Camp David talking to regular folks about what was wrong with the country. And this was his report to the nation. And uh, he sits down uh, from the Oval Office of the American People and he says the following, I'm gonna read you some of the text here. Uh, He describes what he calls a, quote, fundamental threat to American democracy. And he says the threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways. And he says, it is a crisis of confidence. And here is the key phrase. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. The erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and the political fabric of America.
2: I can promise you he won't. Uh, and I don't think any future president will. will. That, that speech was a tremendous act of, of self-immolation Correct. on Jimmy Carter's part. But one has to understand it in the context of the time. And this is where I want to throw it, throw it to the economist and the team. Mm-hmm. that The reason that speech resonated, I think, was fundamentally to do with the economy, right. uh, and and what Carter was uh, groping towards was a sense that something was going wrong with the thing that's the kind of bedrock of of American self confidence. The U.S. was uh, at the tail end of a decade of of stagflation. Uh, inflation had got out of control in the late sixties. It had hit two great spikes in seventy three and again in seventy nine. Uh, and there was a sense that at the same time, the economy lost its mojo and was, was growing more slowly. It so I, I guess the reason for bringing up the 1970s was not only to talk about Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iran, and all the rest of it, but to get to the, the big inflation question, which has been the dominant question in your field, uh, John, this, this year, ever since, I guess, since Larry Summers' prediction that the economy would overheat, which he made back in February. Here we are in June. And if anything, the inflation data have somewhat have somewhat exceeded uh, what Summers uh, foresaw. So uh, I want to ask you the question, because I genuinely don't know the answer. Is this inflation we're seeing right now going to be transitory? Will the Fed be able to take a victory lap in a year's time? Or uh, are we in danger of, not the 1970s, it's not clearly going to be double digit inflation, but are we in danger of making at least some of the mistakes that, that happened in the late 60s and 70s that created the malaise that Jimmy Carter was implicitly talking about, which was economic.
0: Yes.
3: Yes, we are in danger. <laughs> How's that, Bernadette? <for> an <laughs> uh, so how, how much time you got? I've been writing a lot about this lately. I know, no, I know. I'm I, just I, teeing, I teeing you I'm teeing no, you no. no, te- let's, let's talk about this, and I'll try to be as brief as, as I can on the question. Um, I would first say, you know, there's a sense in which Biden already gave this speech. Uh, his first speech, said that uh, the US faces crises. Uh, the first was the obvious one, the crisis of a pandemic, but he right. said we have a, a racial crisis and a climate crisis. And I think there is a profound sense uh, on the left that um, uh, America is in, in terrible straits. Um, and you know, if you want a sense of malaise of America, lack of optimism a, uh, uh, and everything is terrible is getting worse. Uh, the issues are a little different. It's, it's racial justice and climate justice and so forth. But um, I, I think that feeling, the, the feeling of the Malay speech was already given, perhaps as a, as a call to action. There's two issues, economic issues, that I hope we can talk about. You teed up inflation as one of them, uh, stagflation, uh, low growth, which we're already in. And so the, the 70s ticked off with uh, a, a very a low growth uh, decade, which, which was behind a lot of it. Uh, Our low growth started in 2000 and and it's potentially getting worse. Um, So the inflation question I I wanna talk about, but I also wanna put a marker in, uh, you talked about cities and I wanna make sure we talk about uh, whether cities are gonna replay the late 1970s where they looked like a Batman movie. Uh, Having grown up on the South side of Chicago in the 1970s, uh, I'm really attuned to, uh, we don't wanna repeat that experience. Now, let me try to answer a little bit about inflation. Summers was right. Summers is late to the game, but I think is very notable because he's such a prominent, clearly democratic uh, figure to say, uh, and to say this is too much, guys. Uh, you risk inflation. Uh, even, even the guy who was secular stagnation uh, for all these years uh, changed his mind. So th- that was a notable picture, although many of us have been worried about inflation for a long time. I think what's notable here is uh, Intellectually, the Federal Reserve's new policy strategy explicitly announces all of the things I were taught, was taught in grad school are the lessons of the 1970s. They, they renounce. All of those lessons, they have said, we're going to wait till inflation gets really bad before we do anything, check. <laughs> they said, we're going to let inflation run hot in order to try to drive down unemployment, especially among the disadvantaged. the static Phillips curve, check. I mean, the, the, sort of the most basic lesson was that uh, that that if you try to exploit higher inflation for lower unemployment, that thing evaporates on you, you and you get more of both, stagflation, um, check. They're also very firmly dedicated to what they call forward guidance, the idea that giving speeches is the most important way to control inflation, uh, speeches about promises about what you might do in the future. Right. They might as well haul out the win buttons. Uh, so in the Ford administration, there was this "whip inflation now win buttons. And we gave lots of speeches about how inflation should go down. And that was supposed to make inflation go down. So it's very interesting. The intellectual framework reeks a lot of 1971. So I worry about that. Um, Now, analytically, will we get inflation? Uh, I'm I'm a good enough economist to know never to make a forecast, because then you can't prove me wrong, and I won't, (laughs) but I will say why I think it's dangerous. The dynamics of inflation is that expectations matter a lot. If you know inflation's coming next year in your business, you're much more likely to raise prices today. If you know inflation's coming next year and you're a purchaser, you're much more likely to pay that higher price today. So there's this anchored expectations business out there, which is which is really crucial. So so inflation today is whatever the pressure of inflation is plus the expectations, and it slips out of hand when people start to expect future inflation. So that's I think the, it, it will be transitory if people expect that it won't be there, and and if people start to expect if they lose faith in things, then it slips out of hand, and you have a much bigger a problem on your hand. Well where do the expectations come from this is why by the way it's so hard to forecast inflation if we if i could give you any scientific certainty that we'd have more inflation next year we'd have more inflation right now so we know something and we know why it's so hard to forecast inflation just like stock prices so why what what anchors expectations what keeps people thinking it's going to be transitory making the fed's job to contain it uh, easier well the fed keeps saying we have the tools but they don't tell you what the tools are and i think the tool is this is just standard economics. Uh, people believe that should inflation get bad, the Fed will be willing to replay 1980 and 1984. Wow. 20% interest rates, massive unemployment, do what it takes and stick with it for four, five, six, seven years, whatever you want to call it, until inflation's firmly out. That's the tool. Now, this is how I'll give HR has fallen asleep here. So I'll give them a military analogy. <laughs> this is like <laughs> deterrence. Uh, if, you, if you have a deterrent, you have a big stick in your back pocket, and you're negotiating over you know, how, what the smaller part of the war is going to be, the other side needs to understand what the stick is and believe you have the will to use it. So that's the only sense that makes to me of, of the action, the belief in the Fed's tools that anchors people's expectations that say, look, whatever happens in the short run, it won't get out of control. Do you really believe that? Do we believe that our Federal Reserve put to the test will quickly uh, raise interest rates, causing um, this time much bigger problems on the federal budget? We have 100% debt to GDP, not 25%. So raising interest rates is going to zoom the deficit. It's going to hurt the too big to fail banks. All bunches of equity investors are going to lose a ton of money to say nothing of unemployment, especially among the disadvantaged who are just coming back out of, of all sorts of troubles. Does our Fed? have the will to use its tools. That is a question that once people start asking, I worry they will lose faith in. And this time fiscal matters matter just as much. We have this big debt and this persistent deficits. If we are to contain inflation, it has to come with a putting the fiscal house in order. And that's not just raise taxes on the rich because there isn't enough rich to raise taxes on to solve this problem. It's just go back to sensible government, sensible spending, sensible taxes. We can put down the program in in, in five minutes, but uh, you know, do we have? Do people have the faith that inflation breaks out, America will quickly put its fiscal and monetary house in order? That is where the anchoring comes from, and I fear that that faith uh, that they could do again what they did in the '70s. Inflation comes up, oh, transitory factors, supply bottlenecks, speeches about what we might do in the future. Price controls, um, surtaxes on the rich, all sorts of feel-good things that don't actually get to, you know, sort of like the military. The way we handle the Vietnam War is, I think, the way we may handle the emergence of inflation. And when people see that, uh, then it could spiral out. Of so I'm sorry for the long one, but bottom line, the dynamics of inflation are that uh I think we're in a position where it could spiral quickly out of control when people lose faith in the competence of the American government to contain it should it spiral out of control.
2: Here's a nice way of closing closing the the circle, because I, I noticed, and you may have seen this too, John, there's a huge difference in inflation expectations between people aged over 60, aged 40 to 60, and aged under 40. And the people aged over sixty are kind of looking at five percent inflation. Uh, the people aged uh, under forty are, are thinking it's maybe three percent or a little above that. And uh, and and the people in between are well a little bit closer to the uh, the over sixties. Uh, guess what? Expectations are partly formed by history, and particularly the history you've lived through. Uh, and it's not surprising, is it, that the people who are older have the memories of the nineteen seventies and are more concerned about about inflation taking off. So uh, this is a fascinating point at which economics and history meet. Uh, And it was part of the reason that I thought we should talk about the 1970s, because even if we're not going to get 1970s style inflation, the fact that we're even talking about inflation, the fact that that it's the most searched word out there in the Google sphere in terms of economics tells you uh, that that there has been a, a, a shift. And we're seeing how expectations get I don't know. Maybe the Fed will get away with it. Maybe it is all transitory. and Maybe it'll turn out that the yep. oldies are wrong and the young folks are right. And, and maybe Larry should have stuck with secular stagnation and, and not jumped on the overheating, uh, the overheating thesis. But I think this is going to be the big question uh, that will, will play out this year. And I think it'll have a lot to do with how people feel about the Biden administration next year, when, of course, they'll get the chance to cast their votes uh, in the midterm elections.
3: I would emphasize just how unpredictable inflation is. So there are surveys and bond markets don't see inflation coming. But in the 1970s, surveys and bond markets didn't see inflation coming either. Uh, Its mechanics are very much like the mechanics of a bank run. Uh, once, Once you can see it coming, it's too late. It's already here. Um, so it, it it remains
0: one of those big risk uh, kind of elements. I want to go around the horde one last time here, guys, and we're gonna we're gonna call it a day. Uh, okay. The city's uh, next time. Yeah, city next time. Uh, this began with Neil talking about the idea of Biden being the most transformative president since LBJ, and so sort by of like playing golf instead of him being able to hit the ball down the fairway, he ends up in a sand trap, and that sand trap is James Earl Carter. Uh, Question, uh, HR, why don't you kick off with this? It's a question of leadership and kismet and fate. Uh, You look at LBJ, he's elected in 1964. He wins by 23 points. He is running on a tailwind, uh, the tailwind of a martyred president, John F. Kennedy. Uh, He's the master of the Senate and he is overwhelmed by events in his four years in office, domestic and and, uh, overseas. Jimmy Carter is elected in 1976 on the tailwind of Watergate, but he wins by only two points. He is an outsider. He doesn't understand Washington. He doesn't get along with Tip O'Neill. He likewise is overwhelmed and devoured by events, both foreign and domestic. How does Joe Biden avoid the same fate as these two presidents of getting overwhelmed? Is, is it well, in his own hands or does Kismet just take control of these things? I,
1: I think it's a theme that connects really to the discussion we had about, about war, about Afghanistan and about the, and about the economy. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it, he has to lead. He has to lead. Uh-huh. And, and Lyndon Johnson in the run-up to the Vietnam War really didn't lead. He took the path of least resistance. He was trying to accomplish his domestic political priorities, getting elected in his own right in 1964 and passing the Great Society legislation in 1965. And he saw Vietnam principally as a danger to those goals. So he was determined not to make a difficult decision that was in front of him on Vietnam between war and disengagement. And this is why we go to war in Vietnam without a strategy and it's why we go to war in Vietnam in a way that's profoundly dishonest. I mean, Lyndon Johnson lied to the American people, uh, really in, in part to circumvent the Constitution of the United States and the Congress's oversight role in, in matters that involve life and death, right? And and so it should come as no surprise that by 1968, certainly, the American people lost faith in the effort. They've been lied to for a long, for a long time. Right. So I, I think what is most important is for leaders to understand that they're going to have to make tough decisions, and once they do so, to explain those decisions and their policies and actions to the American people. To tie it together again, going back to our initial discussion, war is fundamentally a contest of wills. It's a contest of wills. And, and what across three administrations now, American presidents have not made the case to the American people about a sustained commitment in Afghanistan. They haven't explained what the American people deserve to know. What is at stake? And what is a strategy that will deliver a favorable outcome Mm -hmm. consistent with our interests at an acceptable cost? And so, I mean, maybe it's a cop-out to that that question, Bill, but I would just say lead and recognize that leadership really requires making tough decisions and explaining those decisions to the American people.
0: John, how do you keep Joe Biden out of the sand trap? Well, I will make a forecast as
3: unadvised as it is. uh, first, as Neil keeps pointing us out to us, uh, histories of presidencies depend on whether there are or are not unforecast external events. Right. And if something bad happens or something unusual happens, then that will write, you know, as it happened to George Bush, that will write the history of the Biden presidency. If not, the defining feature is he was elected because he was not Donald Trump. Uh, he has a exactly 50-50 in the Senate, a slim majority in the House, a whole bunch of Republicans in states. Uh, the Republican Party is still kind of in disarray over Mr. Trump, but they're slowly getting over that. And uh, America remains strong in institutions. We do not elect with 50.1% a king who then does whatever he wants. Uh, and I think that those realities are going to define what happens next. So, what happens next? Um, looks like they're going to spend a trillion dollars a year money on infrastructure. Um, some of which might actually show up someday, a lot of which will be wasted in various ways, but what the heck, that's bipartisan. The uh, infrastructure too, the human infrastructure, all the the expansion of various programs, that looks destined to go nowhere. Um, We'll see. There'll be a big fight about it. They may try to pass it under reconciliation. and, And I forecast not much else going done, except for, you know, there are little parts of bipartisanship that are working out under, uh, you know, like I think Tim Scott's uh, police reform bill may go somewhere. They've, they've done little things that aren't making the headlines, and, and they'll keep doing of things. Biden will keep issuing lots of executive orders, which will wind up in court. <laughs> um, there's still the regulatory onslaught will proceed. I've been following the Efforts to stuff climate boondoggles down our throats via um, Federal Reserve and securities regulation—that sort of stuff will go on. A lot of that will end up in the courts. We still have a functional court system, and so we'll trundle along, getting not much accomplished till 2022, when there will be a shellacking in the congressional elections. And that's what happens when you win an election because you're not Donald J. Trump in a very evenly divided country, and you you overreach. HR1, the the the. Uh, takeover of the election system by the democratic party will fail. There's my <laughs> forecast of the day. Um, and, and so we trundle along and it, it's a sort of a, it's not a defined, it's a sort of a caretaker presidency that, that moves little parts of the bureaucracy to the left and otherwise does not, um, you know, become a, a Johnson before Vietnam or a Roosevelt, um, a Roosevelt uh, <laughs> before he ran into trouble too.
2: Neil, I'll let you have the final word. <laughs> I think events, dear boy, events was Hal McMillan's famous uh, response to the question about what the prime minister should worry about. I think there will be events. I think they will lie uh, as the events that uh, caused so much trouble to Lyndon Johnson lay in Asia. I think they will relate to China's ambitions, uh, most probably uh, with respect to, uh, to, to Taiwan, but it could be somewhere else. I think this, this presidency is interesting because it's talked very tough on China. Uh, the administration has adopted a, a far more combative tone than even I expected. Uh, the, uh, the people running the China strategy seem intent on, uh, on, on poking China in places that China's very sensitive about. Uh, that's why uh, issues like the Uyghurs and Xinjiang Uh, Hong Kong are already looming even larger than they did under the previous administration. So I think while John's right in much that he's just said about what will happen domestically, the thing to watch is what blows up uh, internationally. And it could blow up as as early as next year. Remember, it was after the Winter Olympics in Sochi that uh, President Putin annexed uh, Crimea uh, and began a war in Ukraine that is, in fact, still ongoing. And I wonder what will happen after the Beijing Winter Olympics. I I think this is where the surprises uh, lie in store. And there could be a moment of truth for the administration if indeed the Chinese make a move on Taiwan. And it turns out that we are either ready to walk the walk, in which case we'll find ourselves in a much bigger war uh, than either Iraq or uh, Afghanistan, or the administration will blink. Uh, And if it blinks, then, as I've argued elsewhere, we'll be looking at... Something worse than Jimmy Carter and, uh, and malaise, we'll be looking at the American version of, uh, of the Suez crisis.
0: Hey, guys, that was a great conversation. John, we will revisit the 70s and cities at a future point, uh, and we will have a good fellows at a future point. I cannot tell you exactly when, sometime in late July, I think. Uh, HR, if we don't do it by July the 24th, happy birthday, my friend.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Thank yeah, you. yeah.
0: Thanks. Uh, But for all of you out there who is, uh, why don't we have the show this way, guys, since our uh, our loyal viewers won't be seeing us for a few weeks, uh, they may want to turn their pursuits to reading instead of watching videos. So uh, how about the three of you uh, each give our viewers one book to read this summer?
2: Well, I'll go first. I wanted to see the Vietnam War from the Vietnamese side, the North Vietnamese side. There's an extraordinary novel, uh, Bao Ninh's The Sorrow of War, uh-huh. Uh, that tells that story it's an absolutely riveting novel and it belongs in the uh in the pantheon of great of great war literature in my view you will you will see that war very differently once you've read the sorrow of war bound in like
3: well, okay. i can't give you one of anything but um I, I give you three i i think i plugged it before but i read george will's uh um uh conservative sensibility which i highly uh, recommend uh, a one-stop shop on political philosophy. I don't agree with everything that Will says, but um, it, he tells me the questions I need to ask. Um, I just saw uh, from Marginal Revolution, the the other blog you should read, a recommendation of uh, From Rebel to Ruler, 100 Years of Chinese Communism by Tony Sage. That, that's definitely on my... Uh, to read list because uh, you know we don't need, no, we need to know. Know your enemy, I think is what uh, HR keeps telling us. And I'll plug a fun book I just read by Ryan Bourne of Cato, uh, Economics in One Virus. Uh, a lot of the, econ- it teaches great economic lessons. People ask me often, you know
0: what can I read about economics that doesn't have equations in it? Uh, and that's a good one. Okay, and HR, uh, you're in the islands right now when you're not climbing coconut trees and, and uh, paddle boarding, what are
1: you reading? So after, after the solar winds attack and colonial pipeline attack, I thought I've got to really continue to bone up on, on, on cyber threats. So Nicole Perloff's book, This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, is what I'm reading, but it's not exactly beach reading. And so, but I, so I talk, t- took with me here Tony Jute's book called The Memory Chalet, which uh, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful, really long essay about the end of his, his life and how he re- looks back on his life. Uh, when his his body was uh, and and mine was beginning to fail him, and he was a, he was a wonderful historian by the way who wrote uh, many books, including Post War, which is I think just a, a, a majestic uh, treatment of the of the post World War II period. A period when whenever we think times are hard for us today, you know, <laughs> I mean, we, we it, it, it's a book that we could we, that uh, covers the Great Migration a, a, associated with. Uh, with, uh, you know, with the partition of India and so forth. Uh, But uh, anyway, that's, that's what that's what I'm reading. Perfect.
0: All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, Hey, safe travels. And we will see you at some point in July. And that's it for this episode of Goodfellows. But for not, we will be back soon. On behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster and John Cochran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we wish you and yours the very best. By all means, stay safe, stay healthy. We'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you soon.
1: If you enjoyed this show and are interested in watching more content featuring H.R. McMaster, watch Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org.